Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Pioneer is one of those words that's often thrown around, but today's guest, Bree Brock, is at the forefront of a new era in women's sport in Australia. As the CEO of the Brisbane Lions women's team, Bree is the only female CEO across all AFL teams. She unpacks her own rise to leadership, what she's learnt along the way and the vision that she has for the future. We also dig into the frustration of success when you are so close, but you still don't walk away with the ultimate achievement. Because for the last two years running, her team, the Brisbane Lions women's team, have made it to the grand final and lost both games by the narrowest of margins. For all of us facing setbacks, the conversation about what you do next is incredibly insightful. There are plenty of gems in this chat with someone who's truly at the forefront of change. So sit back and enjoy the conversation with Bree Brock. Bree, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Look, um, I want to talk a little bit about your role as the CEO for the Brisbane Lions women's team. Tell me, what is it that, that you enjoy most about that role? It's a good question. I think um, sometimes I really have to think about there's a lot of challenges in a role like this, um, but mainly it's about giving women and girls an opportunity to do something they couldn't do two years ago and how we keep progressing that opportunity, opening those doors for women and seeing those girls get out on the field and achieve the things that they get to achieve and um, the joy that they play with and the passion that they play with. And I go, oh, my God, that's so amazing. And see these great photos and vision of them. And I suppose I, I challenge myself to keep keep giving them that opportunity and keep making it better for them. So you've been in this role for the last two years, and I understand that um, across all of the AFL teams that you are the only female CEO uh, across both women and, and kind of men, male teams. What challenges does that bring or what opportunities does that bring for you? Yeah, certainly I think it brings more opportunities than challenges. Um, certainly opens doors that probably are close to you if you have a different title or a different role. And, and certainly it's helped our girls be at the forefront of our club's thinking because, um, you know, we work very closely with the men's CEO or the overall club CEO, as well as the club executive. I sit on the, that executive as well as one of two females on that exec. So we're, I'm at the cold face of decision making and, you know, that's been an interesting place to be at times because uh, it can happen so quickly and, and maybe naively in other roles or maybe as I was a younger worker in other businesses, you think that there's um, sometimes long, lengthy processes of how things get decided and other times it's like, no, we're going to do this, let's do it, done. Um, so I think it gives me a huge opportunity to work quickly, um, be flexible, um, influence people in the business that I need to help me do what I've got to do and, and also to integrate our team a lot better inside the business. I'm not sort of working through the bottom of one department. I'm, I'm sort of across all departments at the club and can help um, influence people's decision-making very easily when you're sort of on the upper end of the chain, which is which is a great thing. 
Yeah. Often with CEO roles, we often think that once you get to that title, you know exactly what you're doing, you know how to make the right calls, or at least you know the right people to ask. But the truth is that um, leaders are often made, not born. It comes with experience Mm -hmm. and and with time, making mistakes along the way. Was leadership always something that you wanted to aspire to? Is it kind of part of your DNA or have you had to work hard? Yeah, it's a tough one. I would say... Uh, from a young, I played a lot of sport growing up. Um, so you know, whether I've been captain of this team or whatever it might have been, I've always, oh, people always say you're very bossy, <laughs> or you've got an opinion. Um, I look at that differently to say, well, I think my opinion matters, so I will voice it. I think a lot of girls get dissuaded from voicing their opinion because people say things like that. So I think I've always spoken my mind. And Where has that come from yeah, for you? Is yeah, that somebody asked me this the other day, and I, I think it has come from, look, as growing up as a child, uh, we moved overseas every three years. So moving countries, schools, I think I've been to 17 different schools. I've lived in 22 different houses. So you become almost like a chameleon if you want to make friends quickly, if you want to have a you know, a nice time wherever you go. It was only me and my sister in our family, like close in age. My other younger sister is eight years apart, so she was always, you know, in baby school or, you know, so far removed from our social circle. So we always stuck together to a point because we were quite different um, and didn't always get along. We're, We're best of friends now and I can't live without my sisters. But at that time growing up, it was sort of like, all right, well, you work out quickly, who's the cool group, who's the sporty group, you know, you get this ability to assess situations and go, okay, well, the easiest way I'm going to make friends in this school is to be this way. So you might um, dress that way or adapt, whatever, adapt, adapt you just adapt, designer. right? Yes, yeah. So, um, you know, my accent over the journey, because we went to British schools and American schools and back to Australia and, you know, had all these weird and wonderful accents that, you know, just assimilate better and quicker. Um, the hardest part we always found was coming back to Australia was the hardest place to fit back in because most people went to one primary school, one high school. They had their friends. They weren't looking for any new friends and you found it really difficult to kind of get into groups, whereas overseas there were other kids like you who had moved and were only in a place for three years or something like that. So I think that ability to sort of read the play a bit helps um, assess situations and then the other part of that is sport, you know, playing a lot of sport. And and my parents too. My parents never – I don't feel like my parents either built me up or tore me down. Like they're just, whatever, do it if you want to do it. You like to do that, go do that. You don't like to do that, don't do that. I never felt like my, my parents were, you must succeed in life or you must – do that. They sort of just let us let us be. So I think that's sort of my, my, both my parents are quite confident people as well. So so there's probably a bit of just again that chameleon copy them because it looks like they know what they're doing. So then um, the first time it really struck me that I had an ability to influence people and lead people was um, I moved to the Northern Territory to work for the AFL up there, running women's football. They'd never had anybody sort of focusing on it and doing it and that we had a trainee girl in the office and she turned to me and said I just I just want to be like you when I grow up and I was like huh what do you mean (laughs) I'm just here doing my thing she's like yeah but you're the first woman they've ever employed up here women can work in the AFL like I didn't know that 
Wow. And I, that really struck me and I thought, wow, okay, so I better do a good job then and not stuff this up. There's people watching yeah. that maybe I hadn't certainly. thought about. Or yeah, and certainly about. people up there were watching as to what was this girl from Brisbane going to do in the Northern Territory. She doesn't know us. She doesn't know our football. You know, is she going to affect any change? Is anything going to get better? Um, and, you know, I was glad to say it did get better and I did help them. And that sort of gave me some confidence, I suppose, to think, oh, I kind of know what I'm doing in this space and I understand my customer and what they need and, and I can actually help people. And so, you know, it makes you feel good and you keep doing it and you just get better at doing that. So, you know, I was still, I was 30 at that stage, so it wasn't um, like I was 20. But as a young, uh, when I left, left uni, I was a tennis coach for 10 years. So you're always talking, you're always on show, you know, people are watching you work because there's parents on the sidelines, the kids are watching you. So you do have to always present a particular persona in A, that you know what you're doing, because otherwise people aren't going to come back and you're not going to get paid. And, um, you know, that you have to give of yourself to people because they want to learn. So I think that that, that gave me a really good base of um, being able to connect with people and, you know, get kids to line up at 17. You're thinking, God, how am I going to get these three-year-olds to do this? But you work it out and you figure it out and then... Yeah, it sort of ends up now. I've got a group of thirty women that I've got to, you know, line up at times, yep. and they're not quite. Three it's year not olds, the three-year-old. <laughs> they do listen a lot better, but it's the same same sort of thing. How do I make sure that I get that group engaged and on the path to where we're all headed? And imagine you're constantly um, reiterating or seeing what connects with people and what people are going. Oh, yeah, and I can move and uh, and work with that. When you know, going back, I guess two years um, and stepping into the CEO role, is that a position that you applied for? Were you approached for? What was the driver behind putting yeah. that for that? So role? I mean, the the um, club had to apply for a license to the AFL, um, and part of that was that they were going to put on this position. Uh, I was working for the AFL at the time and helped them write that proposal to get their licence and then looked at their structure and said, I don't, I think you should go, not that it was going to be a CEO role, but just I think you, you need somebody in charge of this. You can't divvy this up and say, uh, well, you're going to do this little bit, you're going to do this little bit. Because at the end of the day, no one owns it and no one's going to drive it. It's somebody's second or third responsibility It'll always get pushed back. So you need to have somebody drive that. Unbeknownst, not, like not thinking that that would take that advice on. And then, um, yeah, they just put out the advert and um, said, look, you know, apply and sat for the interview and went through all that. And a few other people were interviewed as well. And, yeah, was lucky enough to get the job. I think. <laughs> and you've been really at the forefront of what's been an exciting time for women in sport and I guess uh, Women's AFL League mm. going to a national stage and a national platform at the start of 2017. Yep. Um, and not only was it exciting viewing, watching it on TV, but I think... Um, well, I understand you can let me know whether, you know, they were surprised at just the sheer crowds and the and the, mm-hmm. the support yeah. um, that came through. And it's not that AFL, women's AFL wasn't being played before, uh, but now this was the first time, I guess, it was really being recognised mm-hmm. as a league and on a, you know, being televised on mm-hmm. that kind of national platform. What, uh, what excited you about that or what was that experience like to be able to, I guess, be part of... A league that you had been part of, but now it's not uh, not hidden under darkness that we're actually yeah. sharing it nationally. Yeah, it it you know it is a long time coming. There, I mean, there are people that have been involved for twenty years before I ever came on the scene. 
The the hardest thing was that we've always had this product. We've all anyone in women's football has known how great it's been, um, regardless of like the skill on the field, just what it brings for women. Um, you know, it's an amazing sense of confidence, physical confidence that you go and play this game that demands trust between women. And sometimes that's not always easy in life. I think women are sometimes sceptical to trust each other, but you play this game, you've got to protect your teammate. You've got to trust that someone's going to do what they're going to do. And I think that's what women love about playing AFL, the the physicality of it, but also that camaraderie of it. I mean, that's why men love it as well. So to know that we had this product and that it wasn't being promoted and it wasn't being uh, pushed as equally as what men's footy was, even at a community level, yeah, that was so frustrating. And you're always bashing down doors and um, always being that annoying person who keeps talking about women's football and how can we make it better? And you know, you could see people go, "Oh God, here she comes again!" Quick shut your door. Haven't we? Aren't we over talking about that? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. And so, what was the? I think the most pleasing thing about the whole the whole experience of coming into a national league was I thought we were still going to have to do that. I thought we were still going to have to convince everybody that this was a good thing. And sure, there are knockers on it and there are people who are naysayers, but there's more people who are positive and more people who love it. And so when that first game was played, still we didn't know what to expect. And our girls, we were all training, so we finished training early because we didn't play till a Sunday and the first game was on the Friday and we finished training and they all went into the clubhouse where we trained to watch it. And I was busy packing up and I thought, no, I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to get home. I want to sit by myself in the dark and I just want to see what what happens, just see what we, what happened. And, you know, I just couldn't stop crying because people showed up. People showed up to the thing that we'd been banging on about for the last 10 years. People got locked out of girls' football and went like, as if that was ever going to happen in our wildest dreams. Just the way it got presented on TV, the telecast, everything was, okay, it's a real thing now. This is really going to happen for us. So we then didn't know what to expect, us flying to Melbourne the next day. We played on the Sunday, you know, sort of six or 7,000 people at our game. Um, we won the first game that we played and it, it was just, it was a massive relief that winning that first game because we knew then we're going to be okay. We're going to be competitive. We'd done the work. We were physically ready. The girls were ready and we'd knocked off Melbourne who everybody thought was going to win it. So, all right, now let's see what can happen now. So it was just this amazing weekend that, um, you know, spent probably half the time crying because it was Friday night <laughs> crying, then we win the game, we're all crying. and um, But it, it, it was just magic that to know... Um, no one was ever going to take this away from us now. We were here to stay. Mm. And imagine to see the response from the crowd and uh, them getting into yeah. it and, and just even to share a story. My um, nine-year-old son, he's an avid AFL um, fan and, yeah. and player, um, but I loved watching him get into the league as much as um, yep. my daughter. Yeah, right. And, and he was just going... The, for him, there was no difference, yep. and I, and that's what excites me. Yeah. Was they were just playing hard and they were yep. playing good football. Yep, um, and it didn't matter. Yeah, gender. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that's you know seeing that through his eyes. I went, that's the future that I really hope we continue. Um, mm. And whilst you say, yeah, it's it's such an exciting time. There's still a lot more to go, and we'll talk a bit more later about the future of um, AFL Women's League. Mm. But um, yeah, that must have been such a gratifying. 
fun moment. Yeah, it was a, there was a particular moment in, in that very first game. I mean, it absolutely poured rain and well, there was sort of like 9,000 people there, but I think quickly got down to five because like torrential rain, lightning strike, we get killed off the ground. And we're ahead, I think, coming into the last quarter, maybe it was halfway through the last quarter, and all the Brisbane Lions fans had all ended up congregating on one side sort of behind our bench. And I'm watching the game and I'm thinking, I can hear all this. What's all that noise? And then I, and I'm realising it's them cheering for us. It's them cheering the big Lions chant. And, and it was so loud. It was better than the Melbourne. You couldn't hear any Melbourne people cheering. And it took me a couple of seconds to go, they're cheering for us. Oh, my God, they're cheering for the girls out there. And you could see the girls just lift. And and I thought, wow, people believe in us and people, you know, they love us. Like, this is great. And and I, I knew then this was going to be successful and we were going to be fine. But um, that moment just thinking, oh, my God, people are cheering for us. You know, we just hadn't had that before. So is there a level of, as a CEO then, and now you've got a crowd of supporters mm-hmm. that are also cheering and, and following mm-hmm. that, that now the responsibility also increases? Certainly it increases. Uh, our, our fans are some of the most positive fans going around. Um, jump on our Facebook and have a look at anything they write about the women's team and it's amazing the outpouring of love that we, we have from them compared to some other clubs. Some other clubs are quite critical. So one thing that never gets questioned about our girls is their effort and the, the passion and joy that they play for that jersey and play for the club for. So win or loss, our fans always know that the girls are out there just laying it on the line. So, that you know, that's a particular trademark that we play with and for. And um, we'll, we'll always, as a bare minimum, you know, do that. Uh, skill-wise, we might be off on a day, but we'll always, you know, try to the last minute and, and still try to win those games. So it is a responsibility. It's more from my end is how do we keep engaging those people and making them feel part of it? So, you know, the girls after a game, win or loss, will go over to the crowd, talk to people, sign things, hand out balls, have a chat, have a laugh. We, we don't expect our girls to lose a game and then not be able to crack a smile or see someone they know and have a joke or something like that. It's very different in the men's space. Sometimes boys get really criticised from members if they lose a game and they're seen to be like they don't care. Very different. It's like we've, we've got a leave pass sometimes, I mm-hmm. think. Um, people are more, f- not forgiving, but more sympathetic to girls. I don't, I don't know what it, what it is, but um, so that's our responsibility is to keep putting our arms around our fans and our members and making them feel part of it and not making them feel like, we're on this pedestal and they can't come near us or talk to us, all those sorts of things. So we try really hard to keep our girls really grounded so that our fans and members feel like they're in this with us because we need them to be there. <laughs> mm. And and you have had a couple of years of being grounded, <laughs> maybe frustrated, yeah. where you've had a very passionate, very successful team um, that have won many of their games Um uh, across both of the seasons, both uh, 2017 and 2018, mm. and you've made it to the grand final in both cases mm-hmm. and you've lost by really close margins in both cases. Yep. Um, talk me through what the second loss was like. What was that when, I guess, once the siren goes, what was that like, that, those, that initial reaction for you? 
Yeah, I think probably with about four or five minutes to go, I thought, mm, this is looking unlikely. So I'd sort of already thought, mm, it's going to take a, a miracle or somebody's going to have to do something big to win this. So it's more disappointment for the girls, not for me personally. Like, like sure, um, I'd, I'd love to see them holding up the cup and getting all the accolades that they deserve. Um, from my end, this the first one was devastating and emotional and all those sorts of things because it was like the little baby that you, you know, just put out. Um, but this this second one burnt. <laughs> You're like, oh, so close. Um, so probably in the difference was I wallowed in it last year, the first one, and probably didn't feel excited or happy again until probably the October when we drafted in our new players. I thought, okay, right, move on. This year now, I sort of moved on straight away and I'm thinking in my head, okay, 2019, what are we going to have to do? What are we going to find that little inch or that extra centimetre now to get these girls what they deserve? So I was a bit more cold about it, I think, because I was so angry. <laughs> and not angry at the girls, no no way. There no. was no... no um, questioning how hard they played and, and everything that they did. It, I was more probably disappointed for them to not, not get get it again and, you know. And then, you, and then, you know, as the leader, uh, I can't break down and be in tears because I've got to comfort everybody else who is in tears and make sure they're okay and those sorts of things. So it is kind of hard sometimes to keep it all or put your poker face on and not show your true emotions, but... Um, Certainly, I was like, oh, poor girls, yeah. And I could imagine, yeah, you're kind of describing as feeling that feeling for them yeah. and, what that, and what you would have hoped and would have loved to because um, yep. uh, they go out and give it all. Absolutely. Um, every every game, every yeah. every season. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not unlike life, and I know people listening would have faced times where they've given it all and haven't quite gotten yeah. there. They've gotten so close yep. um, and haven't quite gotten there. What's... And you kind of talked about this one going, okay, right, what's next? What are mm. some of your strategies or tactics, whether it's for yourself but also for mm. the team and for the club, mm. in terms of how do we have this disappointment, this frustration <laughs> yeah. um, fuel us for what's next? Part of it is um, what we want to make sure of is that uh, we're not a hierarchy telling the girls what to do. There, there's certainly an element of that in that they're still learning how to become elite athletes and learning how to go from just community club footballers into to where we're trying to, to take them. They're obviously doing a very good job at taking all that learning on, but we, we want to and we need to make it um, a partnership. So this year we, we did a much more uh, open review sort of system. The first year we were sort of like, okay, well, here's your stats and like, good job and, you know, you need to be a bit fitter and we'll catch you later. This year, you know, we really wanted to hear from them more about what do they want? What could make life easier for them? Because they're juggling real life as well. They're not professional athletes. We only train 15 hours a week. And in that 15 hours, you've got to do your education. That's all your recovery. So on field, we're probably only trading, you know, maybe eight hours. So to try to produce an elite product with eight hours of training is tricky, right? So what's the biggest bang for buck? So is it that we give them... Uh, extra sets of clothes so they don't have to wash during the week. So they're not getting home at 10.30 at night and trying to wash and get up early and go to work and then get back or, you know, they're very easy, simple things to do. Is it uh, dinners every night? Is it 
what are those things that we can make easier for them? Friction points. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So does that make life easier for them? But does that make them a better footballer? Don't know. Is is the trade-off another physio? Is the trade-off another strength and conditioning person? What is that? Because we only have a limited amount uh, we're actually allowed to spend on the program, so that that keeps competitive balance. So all the clubs can only spend four hundred thousand mm. dollars, and that includes all your staff wages, like every single dollar you spend. So if we're going to do extra clothes, let's say that's five grand to give everybody more of this and that, but is that five grand maybe spent better on physio, or physio, whatever? So we want to make them feel, even though you know, as athletes and part of the team, they probably don't or shouldn't really have to know about all the finances and all those sorts of things, it does reflect on what we can churn out as product. So we want to make them feel like they're on this journey with us and we're listening to their input and we're implementing the things that they think will help them be better. So that's kind of the cornerstone of it. And we're, we're still in a foundation block. We're, we've, we're building blocks and, and we don't think we've probably got the first block right yet in terms of compliance to medical procedures or um, reporting procedures, even people's diets, all those sorts of things that they're all still learning. And once we get that big foundation block done, probably next year I think we'll be light years ahead of where we've been the first two years. Then Then we can add in those other blocks around different or more intricate types of game strategies and different types of like really finicky football stuff because we can't do any of that stuff until we've got the basics right. So we have to be fit enough to run out games if we're going to have a running style of play. So we can't do that style of play yet until, you know, we get them physically ready for it. So lots of different ways, but, um, yeah, essentially we just need that buy-in of the group. And to get that understanding, not to make the call, but to kind of go, right, well, you let us know what would be most impactful for you and where that fits. And for me, that's almost um, fundamental as a leadership kind of call anyway, Mm. regardless of what industry you might be in or or what team you might be kind of talking to. Mm. In this role, as we said before, you've been um, in the CEO role for for two years. Um, If you could go back to what you know now, (laughs) um, two years ago, Mm. what do you wish that you knew, whether it was about being in a CEO role, whether it's around the process or the ways that you make decisions or maybe the decisions that you've made, what advice would you give yourself? I know it's only two years, but yeah. a lot happens in that time. No, no. Look, look, I often say to people, where's the book? Surely there's a book that's, right. <laughs> that's going to tell me how to do all this stuff. Why hasn't anybody written the book? I need chapter five. Yeah. <laughs> there's no book on this one. Um, and look, I, I turn to my... Um, Greg's one, our, our CEO of the whole club, a lot because he's been doing this for 15, 20 years and he's seen all this and done all this. And he says the same thing, you know, look, you just got to learn on the run because there is no book to say uh, all of a sudden you've got to play with a mental health issue. There's no play on that as to how that person's going to recover or be able to play or not be able to play or train or there's everything's kind of a new experience. I think probably in the first year, you know, it was my first year as well, I wanted the club um, to embrace this team and wanted to integrate well with the club. So I I probably wanted things to be perfect and it's got to be like this and you've got the wrong polo shirt on and probably a bit uptight in those sorts of things. And now I'm sort of like, look, care about what matters. Um, There's some things... Yeah, from a commercial point of view, like you've got to have that polo shirt on because that's the sponsor's logo. You need that. 
Um, but if your hair's a bit untidy, I'm okay with that. But first year I'd have been like, brush your hair and pull your socks up and come on, we're trying to make a good impression. Um, and probably thinking I'm an administrator, it's an administrative role really in a way, you know, um, but just how people-based it is and it's relationships with people, it's understanding where they're coming from, what they're going through, um, what motivates them and how to drag them along on that journey is, pro- is probably the biggest thing that these roles um, really entail. Because, you, you've, you know, I've got to do contract negotiations with people, player managers, you, know, you kind of got to convince everybody this is the best place for you to be and we'll play your best football here. So, A, that's got to be true, as <laughs> so you've got to make that true. And, and and then you could believe it and deliver it. So, so it's sort of probably mostly around relationships, which I didn't really probably think when I started. Sort of thought, no, but everybody's cool. We're all on the same page. We're all we they're as motivated the as me, and <laughs> you know we all want to win this thing, right? And that that's probably not the case. Mm. And that often can be the surprising thing is is just the sheer length of time and the investment that's required yep. in those relationships. Um, yeah. But when you do give in to them, they, they repay back. Yeah. Um, but it takes a lot of investment and yeah. time. Yeah. What's your vision or purpose, I guess, for the next um, 12 months or two years for you in this role? And then I'll talk about the, <laughs> the league. Yeah, I, I suppose it's still integrating the team into the greater business. And that's commercially, membership-wise, um, even down to our merchandise and how that's that all of those sorts of things run. And primarily that's because I, I never wanted this team to be a financial burden to the club, to ever be a point where anybody could turn around and say, oh, God, the girls are costing us, you know, half a million dollars. Um, so we, we are sort of cost neutral. So, um, and I'm, you know, working on turning that into cost positive or get revenue raising, which is great. Um, so that's a tribute to the success of the team and people want to be involved with us. So, you know, they're all sort of hand in hand success and commercial success and all that type of stuff. So that's sort of the one, uh, a cornerstone of, you know, financial viability. But the other part is just the strength of the program that we're, we're building for girls in Queensland. I think Yes, we've got seven interstate players who who we love dearly, and we're, you know, scheming how we turn them into Queenslanders and put, leave their Victorian and Tasmanian passports and WA passports at the border, and and that is happening, and they're loving living up here. But you know, I want some a girl who's nine to think oh, I could be a Brisbane Lion and I can just go down the road and play football, and you know, I could. We haven't been able to say that to ourselves before, so that's that's what I want to keep happening. And probably it's it's this list that we've got now. Uh, we really think they have an amazing potential to do incredible things for the next probably five to ten years. And that that's purposely we've built that list for that sort of length of time because we're the youngest list in the comp. And, um, yeah, we want to be successful. So that's, I mean, not mean successful. We are successful for what we're delivering, but I would like to see the girls reap the rewards for that success, I suppose. Bring home the cup with the potential that sits in the team. Yeah, yeah. And and that's, um, you don't often get to do that. Lots of people play their whole careers and never play a premiership, and we've been lucky enough to do two in two years. So we're kind of a little bit ahead of schedule with this list to where we thought we would be. Um, As I said, you know, not that it was a surprise that we won that first game, but we went, oh, okay, we're yeah. actually good. Yeah. As, so that that's, you know, a, love, a credit to, um, you know, our coaching staff and all, all the people who get the girls in that sort of shape. But I think this team has got the potential to be 
do- a dominant force in this competition for a long time and that's kind of where we're, we're aiming for. What does the future hold for the league, the AFL Women's League? Oh, God, it's boundless. Unfortunately, money's the only thing holding it, holding it back. Um, so if there's any benef- benefactors looking to <laughs> sponsor a league that um, has got huge upside, not just from a financial point of view, but the impact that's having socially, it, it, like we just spoke about your son, my son's the same. He can recite every girl's name and number. Now, a guy who's 15 wouldn't hasn't grown up with women being on par to men, and that's a huge shift in male thinking towards women and female thinking towards women as well, that, oh, we can... You know, you can't be what you can't see. So that um, part of it is a huge unquantifiable, you can't put a dollar value on that. So for the league to say, look, we're already spending $10, $15 million on this, they're probably getting $100 million worth of social change out of it somewhere else, you know. So that part will be the trick, the balance between paying players and are they semi-professional, professional um, are we on free to air or are we on Fox or a second, you know, seven mate channel or are we live on an app or all those sorts of things is going to be the huge challenge for the AFL in the next few years. They've got some great people working on it. We probably need another team of 20 or 30 people working on it because it has got so many different sides to it. Um, and I think if we can get it right, um, I think that's where the AFL is a tough one because they get everything right. They never churn out something that's rubbish. So it's difficult to, I suppose, use other women's sports where they've made mistakes and it's taken them years and years and years to get where they are now. You know, soccer is a really good example of, of probably they're on par with where we are in We're year two and they're 10 years in their making. So we're impatient. We expect the AFL to get it right every time. Um, but but that's our biggest challenge is how we're going to make this doable in the next kind of five to six years because we've got six new teams coming in in the next two years. I'm not sure where we're going to find all those players <laughs> at the level that p- the public expects. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of backlash this year at the standard of play early um, with people not really knowing that, you know, they spent eight hours training. So... It's a tricky balance because uh, we're constrained by contracts and hours that the girls are allowed to train and they work and all that kind of stuff. So It's a chicken and the egg, isn't it? It's, you know, mm. If you had the funding to, to have professional yeah. sports people, yeah. then you're going to see uh, a rise in in uh, the quality and the yeah. the um, the actual game as well, which will see a rise in. In all the watching, other stuff, yeah. We've <laughs> seen more money coming in, but yeah. which one, um, come, what do we back first? Yeah, and I think the challenge for the players is to kind of understand that they're the pioneers of this and they might have to miss out on the dollars and they, they might have to be the ones that say, you know, whatever, we're going to train an extra 10 hours a week unpaid because that's what we want to do and we want to be great, um, like Olympians do. You know, like a lot of people who, or the teams, you know, the cricketers have done it, the soccer girls have done it. Um, and that's what I mean about our impatience with AFL. We think, no, no, they're a rich sport, they can afford everything. But it's sort of, you know, half a million dollars for every game that gets played is sort of the cost to, to the AFL. And, you know, that's not an insignificant amount. So there's a little bit of that, you know, uh, it's not 
it's definitely not what the players want to hear because I think they all want to do their best and, and be the best that they can be and they see being more professional as that avenue. But there's a, there's a sort of give and take period and this probably third year and fourth year is going to be that period where they've got to say, okay, we're just going to do this and just get it done and, yeah, and, we, and we will support them as much as we can. And I think it's a really interesting point, again, um, across a whole range of different industries. If you're trying to do something new, and and often people are, um, whether it's a new way of operating, a new way of running their business, a new way of doing something, you're absolutely pioneering and it's going to come with yeah. uh, its own challenges. And, and again, everyone's impatient because you can see a vision, you yeah. can see what's possible, but mm. it's going to take some time and it's almost sitting in that um, as well. Yeah. For and you know, being in the CEO role, and obviously clearly you're really passionate about it. There's um, there's a lot that can pull you in a million different directions. <laughs> yep. How do you manage your own busyness, or how do you look after you and in, in amongst the busyness? Uh, poorly. Yeah. Is the short answer. <laughs> uh, something's got to give, and that's been me. Mm. Um, I've got a five year old son as well who's just started prep, and I think because we train nights, I got to pick him up twice in his first term of prep. So, you know, the mother guilt's pretty strong in me. Um, so that's hard. My husband is also involved in football and he's a, he's a coach and so and we're ships in the wind. So that, that probably gives as well. We could say we'll have two dates a year or something like that. <laughs> um, my mum just moved in with us to help us with our schedule and be there to do pickups and nights and things like that. So, um, you know, you got to live with your mum or your mum's got to live with you. So there's little things like that. I rely heavily on my sisters to help me out with babysitting all this and whatever it is. So a tight families, you know, I'm very lucky to have that. But it's, essentially it's been me. I can't remember the last time I went out with my girlfriends or had a lunch or went to the shops. I don't think I've had my head on this year, you know, <laughs> all those yeah. sorts of things that you do for you. Because I, I suppose I'm like, well, if I go and get my hair done for three hours, it's three hours I could have spent with my son. So that goes out the window. Um, yeah, so that's what has given. <laughs> it's been the me. And now the season comes. Obviously, we're finished now, so I kind of get to get that back again with for the, the next few months. So it's just, you know, honing your time in in different times of the year and, and trying to be a good mum when you can and do things. So, you know, I go to work late every day because I drop him off to school. So um, that's the benefit of being the CEO, that you can kind of make your own hours and say, oh, look, I'm doing this or I'm working from home. Or um, So the flexibility is good. Um, but that that's sort of, yeah, you're torn in 10 different directions. And, you know, all of my staff finish their contracts now. So anything that comes up in the off-season, I end up, doing all those it's bits and pieces too, yeah. as well. So in, in a way, kind of, I get busier in the off-season because I take on other people's work, uh, but it's sort of not the same hours like working in nights and being at training and those sorts of things. So, and it just, I think the first year, as I said, I you know, wanted everything to be so right because I wanted the girls to have a good experience. I wanted them to walk in and go, holy, I'm working, I'm playing for the Brisbane Lions. How good is this? Which means... You know, I would straighten everything up and I would do this and I will clean up and all those sorts of things. I've let go of a lot of that this year and trusted my staff and knew that they were on the right track and they were doing a far better job of what it took than what I was doing anyway. So I took that on a bit this year and just let go of a few things and I'm probably just year on year let go a little bit more and 
and let everybody do their job. But it's a hard one because it's it's my thing that I'm making and I, I need to make sure that it's been done to the standard that it needs to be done. So, yeah, just got to give it up a bit. But, yeah, the, yeah, I get I it's, often... It's hard to yeah. find those moments and get those people to support you around. Yeah, yeah, but, again, that's why I'm so lucky I've got a great family. <laughs> the... Um, Look to kind of wrap up. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Uh, if I were to say that to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Yeah, that's a great question because people say to me, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're the CEO of the Brisbane Lions." And I'm kind of like, "Oh, I'm just I'm just me doing me, uh, helping people do what they want to do." However, um, it's pretty cool to get to do what I get to do. So. That's that piece of when you get pulled a hundred different ways and you think, oh, my God, I haven't done the grocery shopping and I've got to do that email and I've got to go do that thing. It's just to be able to take that breath and go, yeah, but it's pretty cool. I get to do this. So um, I'm going to do that a lot more this year as a, a little promise to myself. And and I think back to what we were saying about boys, like my little boy says to me, yeah, but you're the boss, aren't you, mum? You can do whatever you want. And I think that's pretty cool too that a little five-year-old thinks that, you know, women can be the boss and we can be in charge of men and we can do great things that, yeah, this this little kid thinks that, you know, we're true or not true, you know, that um, on this big deal. But it's more the point that he thinks women can be a big deal, which is pretty pretty awesome as well. And he's going to grow up and yeah. that's just normal. Yeah. Just is. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the huge opportunity of our league, of our team and of our club that we get to influence that, which is, you know, again, pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, Bree. It's been fantastic to chat with you. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real-world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.